Hello, and welcome to the How Life Works podcast, the podcast that helps introductory biology students better understand some of the toughest topics in the course. These podcasts are written and delivered by the authors of Biology How Life Works and are sponsored by Macmillan Learning. Learn more at macmillanlearning.com. Hi, I'm Andy Knoll, one of the authors of How Life Works. And today I'd like to talk to you about global change. Over the past year, the news about our natural world has been grim. Unprecedented wildfires in Australia, in California, and in the Amazon, crippling drought in parts of India, melting glaciers, and declines in the global population of animal species, from insects and corals to birds and mammals. How can we understand these events, and how do we place them within the broader framework of a changing planet? First, let's ask about global warming. Is Earth getting warmer, or is that still unsubstantiated conjecture? And if our planet is warming, does that simply reflect natural variation, or are human activities involved? As I was writing the script for this podcast in January 2020, Boston, my hometown, experienced temperatures as high as 74 degrees Fahrenheit, a bit more than 23 degrees Celsius. That's unusual to be sure, but by itself is this evidence for global warming. It turns out that since Boston temperatures began to be recorded systematically in 1872, January temperature has reached 70 degrees three times. The other two were in 1876 and 1950. The distribution of these record temperatures tells us that weather is extremely variable, And so by itself, an unusually hot winter's day doesn't tell us much about global change. On the other hand, January 2020 was the 421st straight month where global temperatures exceeded their average over the 20th century. That's global warming. Without question, over the past few decades, a clear signal of global warming has emerged from the noisiness of weather records. So we know that the Earth is warming because we can measure it. Global monitoring on land and in the sea indicates that since the end of the 19th century, the Earth as a whole has warmed by nearly one and a half degrees Fahrenheit, not quite one degree Celsius, with greater warming near the poles. So if the Earth is warming, what is driving this trend? We know that the intensity of solar radiation varies through time, so maybe the temperature change recorded by scientists reflects our variable sun. A century of measurements of solar radiation allow us to reject this hypothesis. Observed variations through time and insulation simply do not track observed temperature change on Earth. Something else has to be afoot. That something else is the atmosphere and the greenhouse gases it contains. As we discuss in the final chapter of How Life Works, Living in the Anthropocene, greenhouse gases absorb heat radiated from the Earth's surface and then re-radiate it in all directions, trapping much of the heat within the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is a strong greenhouse gas, and as its concentration in air increases, it warms the planet. Methane, or natural gas, is also a potent greenhouse gas, as is water vapor. Water vapor is tricky because Earth has no independent mechanism for increasing its abundance in the atmosphere. 
However, as the atmosphere warms, it can hold more water vapor, and this can amplify the warming effects of carbon dioxide and methane. Once again, measurements are critical. As we discuss in our chapter on ecosystem ecology, scientists have measured the abundance of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere for more than six decades, and it's increasing. Carbon dioxide, present at 316 parts per million in 1958, stood at 415 parts per million in May 2019, an increase of more than 30% in a human lifetime. Atmospheric methane has also increased, and together the increases in these greenhouse gases go a long way toward explaining the observed global warming. So if the Earth is warming and increasing carbon dioxide is responsible for this, where does all of that carbon dioxide come from? Well, perhaps volcanoes have spewed more CO2 into the atmosphere. Or maybe changing patterns of ocean circulation have released more carbon dioxide into the air. One more time, measurements enable us to test these hypotheses. In particular, measurements of the isotopic composition of carbon in atmospheric carbon dioxide. All carbon-bearing molecules contain both stable isotopes of carbon, carbon-12 and carbon-13 but in proportions that vary from one form to another. Long-term measurements of these isotopes in atmospheric CO2 show that the source of the observed carbon dioxide increase has a relatively low ratio of carbon-13 to carbon-12. Volcanic gas doesn't work. It simply has the wrong ratio of carbon-13 to carbon-12. And neither does CO2 release from the oceans. In fact, the only potential source of rising CO2 that has the right abundances of carbon-13 and carbon-12 is organic matter, either living biomass or fossil fuels. And when we add in measurements of the third isotope of carbon, carbon-14, the answer becomes clear. Carbon-14 is radioactive, decaying to nitrogen over thousands of years. And so fossil fuels formed millions of years ago contain essentially none of this isotope. Measurements through time of the carbon-14 in air tell us that the CO2 increase responsible for global warming comes predominantly from burning coal, oil, and natural gas, augmented by the clear-cutting of vegetation for agriculture. So global warming isn't an unsubstantiated hypothesis. It's a fact supported by a huge array of measurements through time. Neither is the role of humans in driving global change simply conjecture. It is also supported by many, many measurements. If all of this is true, why has there been a reluctance to accept this view of our changing Earth? Time and again, I've heard what I call the little old me objection. Many well-meaning people simply find it hard to imagine that humans can exert an influence on our planet equivalent to that of natural processes. The influence of individual humans may indeed be small, but there are seven and a half billion of us, and collectively our environmental footprint is huge. In the 20th century, for example, humans emit 100 times as much carbon dioxide each year as all the volcanoes in the world combined. More geologically-based objections hold that climate's always changing, and that in the past, life has prospered through times when carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere were actually much higher than anything predicted for the coming century. Both of these statements are true, but both ignore a critical element. 
time scale. Geology tells us that climate has changed markedly through time, with ice ages punctuating long stretches when Earth was relatively warm. But times when climate has warmed rapidly are rare in Earth history. We actually live at a geologically unusual time. And yes, atmospheric CO2 was high in the deep past, but rates of carbon dioxide increase like those of the present are rare. Indeed, we know that at times in the past when carbon dioxide increased rapidly, Earth's biota suffered, sometimes catastrophically. Rapid environmental change is the hallmark of the major extinction events recorded in Earth history. But, say skeptics, environmental change may have driven extinctions in the past, but life has always rebounded. True yet again, but again the issue is one of time scale. In the wake of Earth's great mass extinction events, life on land in the sea has invariably rediversified, but has done so over millions of years. On the time scale of human history, on the time scale of our children and grandchildren, species loss in the 21st century will be permanent. The Earth, then, is changing all around us. Temperatures on land and in the sea are rising. Extreme weather is becoming more frequent, and sea level is rising while the pH of ocean water declines. Does this global change explain the documented declines in population sizes and ecosystem diversity? Well, actually, no, or at least not yet. The statistics on population decline around the world are sobering. North American bird populations have declined by nearly 30% since 1970, and insect populations in European grasslands have dropped by nearly 80% over the past decade. Indeed, it's been estimated that population decreases may threaten up to 40% of all insect species with extinction, and at least a third of all amphibian species are under threat. While in Australia, more than 10% of all indigenous mammal species have disappeared since the beginning of European colonization. In the oceans, a third of all commercial fisheries now exceed their sustainable limits, while populations of reef corals have declined from the Great Barrier Reef to the Florida Keys. As we discuss in the final chapter of How Life Works, these figures reflect human activities, but as yet, not predominantly global warming. Over the past century, the principal processes whittling away at natural populations have been land use, over-exploitation of species, pollution, and invasive species. Today, half of our planet's habitable surface is devoted to agriculture. In many ways, this is needed to support the growing human population, but every acre of agricultural land represents a natural ecosystem removed. Selective exploitation of species also takes its toll, whether it be poaching of rhinos in Africa or fishing Grand Banks cod to commercial extinction. Species introduced by humans, either accidentally or on purpose, also contribute to declines in native populations, and pollution degrades environments on land and in the sea. By one estimate, Humans deposit a garbage truck's worth of plastic into the oceans every minute. These influences aren't going away anytime soon, but increasingly they're acting out on a world that itself is changing. And that complicates efforts to conserve biological diversity and natural ecosystems. A final misconception 
is that curbing global warming and other processes that threaten our natural world is expensive, exacting an unacceptable economic toll. Without question, limiting global change will require substantial investments. But these appear unsupportable only if we ignore the costs of doing nothing. A 2018 report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change estimates that every dollar spent to mitigate global change today will pay $5 in dividends by the end of the century. So what can we do? The good news is that global changes fostered by humans can be mitigated by humans. We are the architects of our own future. Refuges such as national parks are critical and expanding conservation areas will help tremendously to sustain natural ecosystems and the species they support. As the world warms, however, parks may grow too warm or too dry for the species that take refuge there, underscoring the importance of building and maintaining corridors between conservation areas to enable the migration of populations. We can be far more forward in looking at the ways that we approach agriculture, in our use of biological resources, in our approach to species invasions, and in minimizing pollution on land and in the oceans. And we can find common cause in addressing the great 21st century issue of global warming. All of us can decrease our carbon footprint through the choices we make in everyday life and through the votes we cast for thoughtful government. And technological innovations can help a great deal. For example, at present, a major limitation on the use of renewable energy is battery capacity, our ability to store the power generated by wind and water for later use. Fortunately, recent research promises new horizons in this ability to store and use energy. And in coming decades, it may be possible to scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, lessening this key factor in global warming. Pilot projects show that indeed it's possible to remove CO2 from air, but the ability to achieve this on a large scale and at a reasonable cost remains in the future. At the end of the day, Human activities precipitated global change, and human activities will be necessary to curtail it. The world in which you and your grandchildren will live is up to you. Thank you for listening to the How Life Works podcast. I hope this talk helped better your understanding of the material you're covering in the course. Good luck, and don't ever stop being curious about how life works. <laughs>